All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talking, touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording once again uh, from the home base on the Upper West Side, New York City, and I'm joined, as usual, virtually by my friend and producer, the David O. Selznick of the podcasting world. (laughs) (laughs) Look it up people. Just look it up. <laughs> David O. Selznick. Look it up. I'm Mike, looking it up. My, <laughs> no, are you really? Yes. Oh, man. All right. What if I had said Louis B. Mayer? Oh, yeah. Okay. Really? Well, that's it, better? No, but but I looked up David O. Selznick, and now, of course, I knew who David O. Selznick was. It just didn't click when you said it. But <laughs> I Louis, know my reputation. I mean, David O. Selznick is just a better name to sort of use as a joke than Louis B. Mayer. (laughs) Although Louis B. Mayer's name, of course, is in MGM, MGM Pictures, Metro Golden Mayer. Of course. Golden? Goldwyn. Goldwyn. It's even, I don't know. (laughs) This was the golden age of cinema. Yes. Oh, man. Started in the silent era. This joke sucked. <laughs> okay, you 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 know why David O'Selznick is on my brain? Why? Um, I spent the weekend. Okay, this is so boring. I'll say it as quickly as possible. <laughs> I spent the weekend reorganizing everything in my apartment. Not my clothes, not my kitchen, but everything from like office supplies to photo dealer supplies to old business records, books, um, what else? More. Hmm. Taking all things that need to be organized and all possible places to put things, storage places, closets, etc. And I redid the entire thing. Uh, First of all, I have cuts and scrapes and bruises all over (laughs) my hands and arms because I was doing this by myself. But I got to all my old film books. Wow. And I'm I'm like an anti-hoarder, but this is like one thing I still have not been able to get rid of because I have this mm-hmm. incredible library of like, I think I have like four biographies on Hitchcock alone. You know, I just hmm. have like all these incredible, everything from like how to make movies to all these like biographies of people. Anyway, so I have like old timey cinema in my head. I mean, I have like the complete works of screenplays by Preston Sturgis. Okay, look that up too, people. Um, it sounds like uh, you went deep into the archives. I mean, uh, I just had, I was literally reorganizing everything because it just needed to be done just based on sort of ease of use and what I use the most and what's the most accessible. But I will tell you, I had one quandary where when I was got to all my old film stuff, I also have the not the complete, but I had a book of, I think, five screenplays of Woody Allen. Oh. So I was yeah. like, okay. I'm, what do you do with those? I threw it out. Yep. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. you know, he had a very specific style at one point, like in the late 70s into the 80s. Right. Um, when he made 
uh, Annie Hall in Manhattan and numerous other films. Great Gordon Willis was his cinematographer, the great Gordon Willis, who also shot The Godfather. I mean, just like one of the all-time great, great cinematographers. And um, shot The Parallax View. Gosh, so Mm -hmm. many amazing things. Um, All the President's Men. And then Woody Allen changed cinematographers. But anyway, he had this great style that he worked with with Gordon Willis that I really loved. And I used to really study that work. Well, anyway. Okay, so I don't know. What are you supposed to do? It's... It's confusing. So I threw it out. You got the got that darkness out of your uh, yeah, life. Yeah, I got the darkness. Yes. I, I removed the darkness. Not that Alfred Hitchcock was a saint, but anyway. Right, um, right. Slippery yep. slope, but I didn't throw out. I'm never throwing out my Alfred Hitchcock books. I just <laughs> can't do it. Um, all right. So how was that for a, a digression? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, did you expect in a million years that that's where we were going to go? No. No, movie talk, classic movie cinema talk yeah. <laughs> with Sasha Wolf. I love Turner Classic Movies, by the way. I bet. Mm-hmm. So fun. Um, how are you? I'm doing all right. You know, it's uh, I've got my final black and white photo class tomorrow. I had my last photo two class last week, and it was great. It was, uh, you know, <laughs> it feels, I'm hoping it's kind of the end of this moment uh of you know trying to figure out how to do everything starting last spring and uh you know i'm hoping you know in the fall there'll still be some hybrid classes and some remote learning but i i think that part of it is figured out and i'm I'm, and i'm i'm looking forward to having way more in-person courses in the fall sure yeah but you know i feel like we all went through something together as a class in my two classes and so you know it's definitely going to be uh more of a celebration tomorrow yeah you were like the equivalent okay this is a ridiculous i can't even believe i'm gonna this is what came to mind for some <laughs> reason i'm really this is like i have for some reason grand cinema in my head so i was thinking you were like the cecil b demille no, <laughs> like your ship sank and no your oh. ship sank and you all got on a lifeboat and you were adrift together and then you were finally rescued like when you said yes. we've been through something together yeah but there's that's Absolutely. like a there's that that's a movie. No, it really it really feels like it. The uh, sharks we, we, were circling. Oh, all kinds of things were circling. Some yeah. people didn't make it. Oh, <laughs> no, I, no, I think no, that's no, probably. no. <laughs> Dial it back. Too dark. <laughs> um. So we had a. I think this week's episode is excellent. Yeah, I think it's going to be a real treat for our listeners. Yeah, it's a um, it's a conversation with with Gregory Harris, who's the associate curator of photography at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, and it is a serious behind the scenes uh, look at what it means to be a curator. Everything from how exhibitions are decided upon to how acquisitions are made. Yeah, the um, you know, there's there's so much. So much interesting uh, information that, you know, someone like me, you know, didn't know um, in terms of uh, the workings of museums. And but also, you know, Greg Harris has you know, when, when you have a, a more kind of uh, back and forth, 
you know, he mm-hmm. has some interesting ideas as well about where you know the museum could go next. And I, I thought that part of the conversation was great, um, as well as um, when you uh, ask Greg about, are dealers annoying? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a very sweet conversation. Yeah, ask him if he gets a thousand million emails from people like me trying to get him to acquire artists and how annoying we are. <laughs> It's a really good conversation. And the the whole, yeah, that whole um, uh, process of acquisitions. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm, first of all, Greg is just, he's really incredibly smart, super articulate, and really charming. I, I am very fond of him. And it was just a total joy to spend that time. And I always say this about the podcast, but it is, to a large extent, you know, me sort of hanging out with someone, I sort of get to um, mm-hmm. have longer on the phone talking to people than than I often do. Um, so, you know, I do talk to Greg, but, you know, often I am trying to get him to, <laughs> to buy something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, no, and, and, for, and for anyone who's ever dropped off work at a museum or, or made their own uh, you know, went to a review, a portfolio review of any kind or anything like that. Um, I, I think it, I think what Greg says will be, you know, really good to hear. Yep. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. Well, because I took up so much time talking about <laughs> reorganizing my apartment, why don't we get to it? So, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here's your conversation with Greg Harris. <laughs> Gregory Harris, Associate Curator of Photography at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sasha. It's so great. You're my first curator, I feel like, on the oh, wow. podcast. I feel like it's um it's it's just so fantastic. First of all, I'm just so happy to get a just a chance to hang out with you this afternoon because I like you um and I love talking with you, you know, personally, but I really, really feel like we're going to, or you're going to provide the listeners of the podcast with, you know, real behind the scenes look at the museum world. I know that people, you know, a lot of artists just have no idea how shows are put together, how acquisitions are decided upon. So really looking forward to getting to all that um, with you. But let's start as we always do, if you don't mind. Um, just telling the listeners a bit about, you know, who you are, where you come from, and how you wound up at the high. Sure. So I I grew up in western Massachusetts in a little town in the Connecticut River Valley. And, you know, I got into photography kind of the ways that I think a lot of people do. My dad gave me a camera when I was about 14, and I was just hooked on taking pictures. I ended up moving to Chicago after high school, and I studied photography at Columbia College there. It was an amazing program you know, with fantastic faculty, like people like Dawood Bay and Paul D'Amato. And um, I was really immersed in you know, learning how to make pictures and make a life as a photographer. Um, I kind of always intended that I would be like a globetrotting photojournalist or documentary photographer. But toward the end of that program, I started realizing that there was just something about you know, the possibilities of being a photographer that... I maybe was not all that well suited to it. I was, you know, looking around at 
my my classmates and just kind of seeing like the people who were really incredible photographers like you knew that they had they had something special and i was you know perfectly good at making pictures but i didn't i didn't think i had that thing that all these other people had or that drive to really do it but i was realizing that i was so much more drawn to having conversations with people about their pictures and looking at other people's pictures and trying to make sense of them and help them make sense of them that I thought that maybe there was another another path forward. And it, it happened that I got a, an on-campus job at the Museum of Contemporary Photography, sitting at the front desk and helping them install shows. This incredible museum that was right in the same building where I was taking all my photo classes. And as I was having this realization that maybe I wasn't cut out to be a photographer, I discovered museums and it changed my life. I just kind of went off in this whole different direction. I, around the same time, got an internship working at the Art Institute of Chicago just up the street. So I spent a couple of days at MOCP and a couple of days at the Art Institute while I was finishing up my final semester at Columbia. And it was just this amazing time getting to I need to see like how a museum worked and what a curator does and how a show comes together, how um, curators interact with artists. And it, it, it was just, I was hooked. I wanted to do nothing else. At that point, I knew exactly that that was the path I wanted to, wanted to be on. And I had this experience when I first day at the Art Institute. Uh, I was working with um, Kate Bassard, and she said, we're going to do this show called The Concerned Photographer. And it's going to be about socially and politically engaged photographs you know, throughout the 20th century. And she pulled out a couple boxes from storage and said, you know, here's a box of Lewis Hine photographs. Here's a box of Walker Evans photographs. You got these easels here. Take them out. Look at them. Decide what you think should be in the show. I have to run to a marketing meeting. I'll be back in about, in about an hour, and then we'll talk about your choices. <laughs> and it was just, I got to, you know, I got to move the pictures around. I got to look closely at them. I, you know, it was, it was my, you know, 22 year old mind was blown in that, in that moment. And, you know, there's just no going back for me. So I spent about a year interning at the Art Institute and then um, I graduated. I got a job working on the installation crew at the Art Institute. So I spent a year hanging exhibitions, moving objects around in storage, which just could give me another insight into, you know, other parts of the museum. And then I enrolled in the School of the Art Institute's um, graduate art history program, and I was still working at the museum. I had four or five different jobs at the Art Institute while I was while I was going to school. I was working in the museum. I, um, you know, in addition to being an installer, I was a collection photographer. So my job was to go through the entire collection of 25,000 photographs and digitize every single one of them. So I spent two years taking pictures of pictures and getting to know that collection. When that job ended, I moved over to the library and I was shelving books in the library, which I have, um, anyone who knows me knows that I have this kind of uh, unhealthy obsession with photo books. So being in a lot, you know, in an incredible art library surrounded by that was, was also an amazing experience. Um, and then around the time that I was wrapping up grad school, I got a, you know, a special assignment to be a guest curator and I got to curate an exhibition out of the photography collection there. So I had this this incredible experience for about three years where I was taking classes, learning the, you know, the history, the theory of modern contemporary art, but also working in a museum. So I was getting the kind of intellectual training and the hands-on experience at the same time, which you know, I couldn't have asked for something better than that. So I curated this one show at the at the Art Institute. And then I was incredibly fortunate and 
got a job working at the DePaul University Art Museum three weeks before I graduated. So I knew like I was I was going to have somewhere to go as soon as I finished school. It was a very small university museum. I was the, the third staff member to join the museum. And because it's a small museum, you have to do a lot of different things. I was hired as the assistant curator, but they're like, well, you're going to work on shows, but we also need you to hang shows. If you can do graphics, we need you to do the exhibition graphics. You're going to help out with grant writing. You're going to be working in the collection. Basically, anything that needs to be done at the museum, we need you to participate in. And I was like, well, that's great because, you know, I had all these weird jobs at the Art Institute. And I know how to do all of all of these things. So, you know, I did everything from hanging the pictures, curating the shows, writing the labels, um, scouting artwork for acquisition to, you know, changing the light bulbs when they needed to be changed. I was there for about five years and the department museum wasn't specific to photography, but I managed to fit photography into just about every single project I worked on at the museum. And <laughs> what's great about a university museum is that they have, they have a built-in audience of students and faculty. And so there's, you have to try to find ways to make your shows tie in with the curriculum at the museum. So you have to, you have to think very creatively and it's not just about, you know, an aesthetic experience. You have to think about, you know, pedagogy and how the work can be a, a teaching tool. So I was there for about five years doing, you know, all of the, the, the jack of all trades kind of museum work. And I knew I was knew I wanted to focus on photography that had always been my passion um, and a job at the High Museum in Atlanta opened up and I was you know really hesitant to leave Chicago I'd been there for 14 years I loved the city I had such a great network of colleagues and friends but you know jobs being a photography curator are so few and far between that when I was offered the job at the High you know there was there was no way that I could I could say no you know it was a a new position that was created. The photography department was expanding. They were starting to plan new galleries for the photo collection. So there was all of this this great opportunity to to work with, you know, a truly amazing photography collection that you know, and a program that was you know really on the rise. So I got to the high, and um, two weeks after I got to the high, my boss told me that he was leaving for another job. So I thought I took this job thinking I was going to have a mentor, and then suddenly I'm all on my own. And I ended up in a de facto way running the department for almost three years. So it was a wild time because we expanded the photo galleries. I got to plan you know, this new reinstallation and these new galleries and how we were going to use the space. You know, I did a number of shows. I worked at a show with Paul, Paul Graham. I did a show with Mark Steinmetz. I did a show with Amy Elkins. The very first show I worked on was with Thomas Struth, which was kind of uh, mind blowing <laughs> to have that as the you know an introduction yeah. to a museum, new museum. Um, but I've been at the High for almost five years now. It's been kind of a kind of a wild ride. I'm no longer, you know, the the de facto head of the department. I have a great colleague now, Sarah Kennel, who came on uh, close to two years ago, and we're you know we're trying out all kinds of things in the at the at the department right now. So. You know, you and I were joking around before we started recording about, you know, you're on the younger side for, for a curator who sort of had the career you've had, but, you know, it's just sort of so amazing that you started basically curating while you were still in school. And so you just got out of the gate so fast. And yeah, I just really admire that. I think I was the opposite. You know, I was sort of more in the late bloomer. So I'm um, sort of amazed by people like you. I was pretty but, lucky to figure out what I wanted to do really young and, yeah. have, you know, and have the opportunities to, to really pursue that. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, it's really amazing. 
before I get into sort of specific questions that I sort of referenced earlier about collecting and, and planning exhibitions, maybe just explain a little bit for people who haven't been to the High, because the High is really an incredible museum. And you, you, you guys did a big sort of expansion. Was it um, Renzo Piano? Who, who built, who designed the expansion so there 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 are two main parts of the high of the highest building the highest the highest facility um one was designed by richard meyer and opened in 1983 and it's this incredible building that has a a huge atrium there's a big solid wall drawing in there and then we have these zigzagging staircases it's a it's an impressive space um and then Renzo Piano designed an expansion that was completed in 2005, and it about tripled the size of the museum. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a it's a great facility with their landmark, their like their landmark architectural buildings. That you know the High Museum was on a postage stamp at one point. So they're they're really wonderful spaces that we have to work with. You know, it, it's it's the biggest art museum in Atlanta. You know, there are a couple other smaller museums here. There's, you know, the Atlanta Contemporary and uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art Georgia, but the High is really the only art museum that is kind of focused on, you know, a broad sweep of art from from around the world. It's really lovely. I mean, I can be very critical of museums, of the physical space of museums, where I often feel slightly claustrophobic or I'm not really enjoying the way I'm sort of being ushered from one space into another. I can get quite cranky about the way spaces flow often in, in museums. But um, the first time I was at the High, and by the way, it, it's funny that it was 2005 that the Renzo Piano space was completed because <laughs> in my mind, it was much more recent because I remember being down there and going through the space and someone telling me, that it was recently completed. So now I realize how long ago that was when I was <laughs> first down there. Anyway, but I do love those galleries. And I I find them just breathtaking and really, really wonderful spaces to look at art in. I, I think that, yeah, they were just so beautifully designed. Yeah, the, the, like the proportions are really nice. They've got, you know, 15 foot ceilings throughout most of the space yeah. there's fantastic natural light throughout yes. the entire building it, which is great for showing things. paintings but terrible for showing photographs yeah uh, but it feels great and those you know yeah. it's those high ceilings and the natural light that i i really love so even if it's a little challenging when you're dealing with with reflection and glass i think it's a much better experience but anyway i'm taking us off on a tangent so <laughs> so let's get to it so yeah I, you know, we could sort of use, you know, I'll just let you sort of decide what show to sort of use as an example. But I really, really want to talk about, want you to talk about um, how a show comes to fruition, you know, how it's decided upon and then how it sort of all happens. So I don't know, is Steinmetz show or the Paul Graham show or, you know, whichever. Yeah. So exhibitions come together in in a number of different ways um sometimes we you know we'll we curate shows entirely or almost entirely from from our collection so we'll have a particular strength you know for example photography of the american south and we'll put together a show built around that idea using work that we have in in the collection um, we have to rotate the 
the galleries every six months because photographs are sensitive to light. If you leave them up too long, they get damaged. So we're constantly coming up with with new with new exhibitions and using these different parts of the collection are ways that that we program our space. The high also is somewhat distinct in that we have a number of, of deep pockets of monographic holdings by by artists. So you know we have something like 500 photographs by Eugene Atche, over 100 photographs by Harry Callahan, and the same with William Christenberry and Clarence John Lachlan. So there's monographic shows that we can that we can do right out of our collection. Another way that we we put together shows, you know, we'll have a, an idea in a form, you know, some kind of some kind of theme, and we'll go out and we'll we'll find the work. We borrow it from collections, we borrow it from artists, we borrow it from other museums, and we you know we build we build the idea in that way. An example of that is a show that I worked on. Actually, collaborated on it with our curator of folk and self-taught art, and it was about these two photographers and a writer who traveled through the South visiting self-taught artists during the 1970s mm-hmm. and 1980s. And they made portraits of all of these artists at this moment when they were really not taken seriously. These are people like Thornton Dial and Howard Finster, Sam Doyle. But they were making incredible work almost entirely in obscurity. And these these guys set out to to document and tell their stories document their lives and tell their stories. And so we paired the photographs that the photographers made with work by all of these artists that we had in the collection. And there were these amazing portraits. Um, and you know, someone just approached us and said, you know, they wrote a manuscript for this book. They never published it. I'm going to publish this book. Do you guys want to do a show? You have a collection that would be great with it. So we, we built a show kind of around that, that idea of traveling through the South and, you know, and looking at other artists and trying to um, celebrate them and tell their stories. Do you guys, can, can I ask you, do yeah. you guys think about, or how do you think about, I'm sure you do think about it, how do you think about the folks who are going to come to the museum and, you know, what their interests might be? So how do you balance introducing people to Paul Graham versus a show of photography of the American South that may be more enticing because it may feel more familiar to the people um, in Atlanta. I mean, we're, all, we're always thinking about, about audience and kind of how, how we want to tell a particular story or what's an idea that we want to dig into, that we want to either bring a different perspective to our audience to kind of, you know, think about, you know, the world or a topic or something, or, you know, culture in a different way. The, the Paul Graham show, for example, which was, which is a, a traveling exhibition. So that's the other way that shows come in is that we, you know, will essentially, we, you know, we pay a fee to another museum, another organization, and they send us all the work and the basic structure and text for the show. And then we figure out how to make it work in our space. And we make some adjustments to kind of fit our, our style and our, our preferences. But with the, with the Paul Graham show, what appealed to me so much about that is the high has been collecting and showing documentary photography for, for decades. And, so, so our audience in some ways is already familiar with that way of, you know, looking at the world and of telling mm-hmm. these stories about various topics. And, but all the work that we had shown up to that point had mostly been done in a very traditional and conventional way. And Paul has created this way of making pictures that is a really smart blend of, of classic documentary photography and conceptual approaches to the medium that not mm-hmm. only make you think about the 
the subject or the topic that he's thinking about, but they also make you think about how you see those things and how photography is um, complicit in the way that you, you, the way you, you frame the world, the way you experience the world and the way that you understand these topics. So he's, it's very self-conscious about the process of, of looking at and making photographs. And I thought that that would be a really interesting twist to bring to an audience to really deconstruct how a photograph works and how a photograph is made while at the same time making you think about issues around racial injustice, inequality, um, things of that nature. So it was a kind of a way of bringing in two different, two different ways of thinking about photography and making photography, but it was somewhat familiar and it wasn't going to be coming totally out of left field that we were going to be bringing, you know, a conceptual approach to the medium. Do you guys have a sense of how your audience is receiving the work and responding to the work? I mean, you know, obviously you're not walking through the galleries asking people, hey, do you like this? But how do you gauge that? Uh, well, we have we have docents who give tours, and so they're interacting with the audience on a regular basis. And we, whenever we do a show, we have we, we do a docent training. And so we, we walk through the exhibition with the docents. And they often tell us, oh, well, when you did this show so-and-so said this or so-and-so said that. So you get feedback mm -hmm. from the docents. People fill out surveys. Sometimes I'll be walking through the galleries and I, you know, I have my badge on and someone will stop me and they'll just want to talk about it, something, mm -hmm. or they'll want to ask a question. They have no idea if I curated the show or not. I'm just you know, an employee of the museum, but they're like, you work here, you must know something about it. And so sometimes those conversations actually do happen in the space. But you know, there, there, there aren't a lot of formal mechanisms in place for getting that kind of feedback. So I, I mean, I try to just ask people yeah. who I know, like, did you see this show? What did right. you think? Like, is this working for you? And, you know, the other thing is, that, you know, um, you're putting together an exhibition is a very collaborative process. So we're working with people from the education team and mm -hmm. they're, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, where they're, they're helping us craft the structure of the show they're giving us a lot of input on the labels. You're saying like, well, what are you writing there? Like, isn't going to make sense. Or the thing that you're missing is this. So make sure you address that. That phrase or that term is far too jargony. The general audience is not going to understand that. Oh, that's so fascinating. Think you know, about I didn't it in a know that. Way. Yeah, that's yeah, really so interesting. There are all kinds of voices that come into into a into an exhibition as it's being developed. Um, we have a lot of our education team works with schools and teachers. And so they give us a lot of feedback based on what the classes have yep. said and how students have responded. So usually like going into a show with some, with some, with some shows, you know, if they're, if they're really complex or they're maybe addressing a topic that is very challenging, you know, mm -hmm. we may convene some kind of panel or put together a you know a community group to help us think through some of the ideas where we have some some blind spots or we'll convene mm -hmm. um, various scholars for a scholars day to help us think through think through the topic but beforehand it's you know we just kind of we which you know try to put ourselves you know in the the mindset of you know someone who's not always you know may not be so you know deeply immersed you know in in the art world and in that field and do our best to try to understand how they would approach the the exhibition. You know, this is something that I think about a lot, just, you know, the legibility of art yeah. to the average person. And, 
you know, where where do we draw that line? Do we care about the line? I mean, obviously, you know, some people care, some people don't. That's fine. I'm really a big believer in, you know, there should never be one way to do anything. But it is something that I, I think about a lot and wonder about because I am, like you, so seeped in this visual language. But I'm always sort of curious, you know, about how someone who is not is experiencing something that I may really love, you know, what they're, what they're getting from it, how they're reading it. So anyway, I, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that, that you guys worked with the education department, but of course that makes so much sense. Let's talk about acquisitions because, sure. you know, I think for a lot of artists, this is just completely baffling. Um, and <laughs> it's sometimes baffling to me. And I obviously deal with, with curators quite a bit. But what is the process? I mean, I think one thing that most people don't realize is that there are trustees involved. There are there, there, It's a big process to acquire. It's not just a curator saying, I love this and we're going to buy it. So you know, maybe you could talk us through it. Yeah, I think that there's there are a couple, I mean, there are numerous parts to an acquisitions process, but um, kind of the, you know, the, the, the beginning phase is kind of identifying, like, what are your, what are your collecting priorities? You know, what are the areas where the collection is already strong? What are some of the, you know, how can you build on those strengths? What are the areas where, you know, there's kind of a gap in, that narrative that you're trying to build about in you know in my case the history of photography and then figuring out what do we what do we want to add where do we want to fill things in where do we want to add more depth and that is often aligned you know that you know it's often aligned with exhibitions you know we want to be able to show the collection so we'll you know acquire work often with the intention of showing it it forms the foundation of an exhibition or we'll do an exhibition hoping that we'll be able to acquire something out of the out of that show Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of once we figure out what it is we want to buy, we then have to figure out how to pay for it. Right. So some departments have endowments where, where there's been a you know a pile of money that's set aside and it's invested, and every year there's a certain amount of money that that fund generates, and that and those funds are then used to to purchase the artwork. Oftentimes we have to ask our patrons if they will give us the money to support an acquisition. So yeah, talk a little bit about those patrons because I, I think you'd be surprised how little people know about what what you're talking about there. Yeah, you know they're they're people of of means, but they're people who love art, who love the museum, and who want to you know share that love with with other people. So they um, they give us money to you know run the museum and to build the collection. You know they're they're business people. And you meet regularly, uh, or right? I mean, you you all get together to talk about what's what's going on. Yeah, we you know we have they're they're often board members, so you know people, right. and they the the board is there one to financially support the museum, but also to help kind of guide the museum and preserve its legacy and make sure that it you know continues on in perpetuity. Um, so we we have you know board meetings fairly regularly we have and then there are different committees on the board like there's a committee for collections and they approve all of our acquisitions there are committees for ex- for exhibitions there are committees how for how big are finance. the committees the committees are anywhere from 
I would say 10 to 20 people. I think that the board at the high is around 60 people, but I'm not 100% sure about that. So that's a lot of people to try and, and it's a slightly, a little bit of herding cats, I would think, trying to get that amount of people to agree on an acquisition. It can be, it can be. Um, for the most part, though, once once a curator has gone through the process of you know identifying the acquisition and they've re- you know, researched the provenance if that's necessary, and they've put together the funding to to purchase it, and we we then have to we have to write out a what's called a justification. So we basically make a sales pitch for mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what is this work? Why is it important? Yeah. Where does it fit in our collection? Why should we have it? And you you make a case, you make an argument for why we should be adding the work to the collection. And and I should I should say we've been talking mostly about purchases up to this point, but we also most of the work that comes into the collection is a gift, right. either from a collector or from an artist. Um, yeah, I'm going to get to that. So there's there's like we we buy artwork. We don't yeah. buy a lot of artwork, right? But we buy we we are given a lot of artwork, but we also have to go through the same process when we're given the artwork because. Yeah. You know, we're we're charged with caring for that for that artwork. You know, as as long as as the artwork and the museum exist, and so we we don't take just anything because we have to we have to find a place for it in storage. We have to make sure that it you know isn't going to be degraded. We also, of course, we want to we want to show it. We want to make it accessible to the public. So it's a it's a big responsibility, and so it's and of it's course. something that we take. That we take seriously. Well, let me so. just let me, let me just underline that for a second for the listeners, most yeah. of whom are artists, because I know that often artists don't understand. You know, sometimes artists want to gift prints to a museum mm-hmm. because they have a relationship with the museum, or they think their work fits with the museum, and they want that in their bio on their CV that their work is collected at a specific museum. And the museum isn't interested, even if it's free, and this can be confusing, but you just yeah. answered it. So I, I just want to underline that. It's, it's, you know, it is a responsibility. So right. whether you're paying for it or not, you're not just a, a, a deposit for um, random work. Yeah, we, we don't want to, we don't want to take on we don't want to take something into the collection that's just going to languish in storage and no one's right. ever going to see it. You know, yeah. it may not be it may not be shown immediately. You know, it may, you know, we, we have right now around 8,500 photographs in the collection, which is a lot of photographs. It's actually, it's relatively small for a lot of museums that are the size of the high museum, but it's still in you know, a very large number of photographs and our galleries right now, we can, depending on the size, we, we can fit around a hundred photographs on the walls at any given time. So not everything is going to get shown and not everything is going to get shown right right away, but we want to make sure that we take something that actually um, fits our collection that, that we think we can, you know, that has some value, not just financial value, because essentially once it comes into the collection, it doesn't really matter what it's worth. It's a, you know, it's an educational tool. It's a, you know, something there to elicit an aesthetic experience so it doesn't we don't really think so much about the financial value on that side but it, but there are expenses because you know we have climate controlled storage we have to yep. we have to map things we have to frame things we have to you know find right the, and you're not hoarders i mean you're not you're not trying to hoard just the you know most photographs you can so so no. let me 
let me let's go because this is you know I think really fascinating part of of museum acquisitions is are the gifts whether they're yeah. sort of made in piecemeal or whether a collector is bequeathing their entire collection either when they get older or once they pass on. But yeah, let's talk about that because it is really fascinating. I mean, those are those little labels where you see, you know, a gift, a gift of or a gift by so and so, and yeah, it's, which is it's, very common, obviously. It is, yeah. It's the the bulk of the collection, you know, has been been given to the museum by by collectors and artists of uh, you know of all of all of all stripes. So that happens that happens in a, in a few ways. You know, sometimes. There are there are collectors who are you know building fairly large collections and they work closely with the curators um, because you know they want they want the curator's advice you know we're mm-hmm. um, <laughs> we're experts in the field such as it is and they mm-hmm. you know, they want to know kind of what we think is you know important work is worthy work and so they want to they they work with us to build their collections and that's you know something that that we do not just out of the the goodness of our hearts even though we often really you know like these people there's also some expectation that at some point some or all of their collection will eventually be donated to the museum and so we kind of advise them on how to how to build that collection sometimes people will also you know a lot of people that we work with have they have their own instincts they have their own tastes and they they you know they build a collection themselves and we you know we'll, we'll get to know them and they'll offered to give it to us or we'll ask them if they can give some or all of it to us. You know, it's a lot about, you know, cultivating these, these relationships. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious what happens. I mean, are you ever in a position where someone wants to give you their collection and you don't want it, or you have to say, well, we don't want all of it, but because we don't like (laughs) that, obviously you're not going to say that, but you know, you're sort of you know, have to hold that back and just go in and pick out what you do want. And and it, does that hurt people's feelings? Do they feel stung by by that if you're not interested in taking everything they want to give you? With with people who have had a longer relationship with the museum and they can understand how the museum works, right? They, they tend to know that we're not always interested in everything because you know we'll get approached by people who like they have a, they have a collection, they're downsizing their home, or they're just they don't want it anymore. Uh, you know, sometimes they they sold a business and they need a tax write off, and so this is like they can get a tax write off for donating the artwork to the museum. But a lot, but a, you know, some people know that like, we can't we can't take everything. And you know, we, we, there are a number of reasons why we wouldn't take everything. You know, sometimes it's just not in very good condition. You know, the photograph's mm-hmm. been on display too long, and it's faded or it wasn't stored properly, and it's maybe oxidized or there's mold growing on it or you know something like that it has a condition issue. Sometimes we already have that exact photograph or something very similar in the photograph. We don't necessarily need another one, um, so that would be a reason why we would we would decline it. Sometimes it just doesn't fit with our collection. Like you know, the high doesn't have a very large collection of Asian art, for example. So if someone you know approached us and said like I have, you know, I have a collection of Asian ceramics, I'd like to you know, donate those to the high, we would in all likelihood, and, and I, this isn't my area, so I can't really speak with great authority on that. Yeah. I, I just, I don't, I don't see that fitting in with our collection. We don't have a department of Asian art. We don't have a, we, it just doesn't fit within the, the right. context. Yep. So, that, so if it just doesn't 
if it doesn't fit with the the collection we have or it isn't substantial enough to actually like build a new strength in the collection it's just it, it'll be kind of an odd outlier so we would try to help them find another institution where it would fit and have them um, donate it there some people you know they just like take all of it and do with it what you want afterward and, so do you, you know, put keep, it up keep for what option? You want. Sometimes we do. I mean, the, the, yeah. you know, that, that's a process called deaccessioning, yep. where we take something that's in the collection and we we either we sell it either at auction or we consign it with a dealer, or we you know give it to another museum that's maybe more appropriate for their for their collection. But it's a it's yeah. a long process because there are very strict guidelines that the American Alliance of Museums and you know other professional organizations have specified what you can and can't do with your collection and when you sell it. Um, like you can't sell objects from your collection simply to um, fund your general operating budget. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a, a huge no-no in the field because we're we're charged with you know preserving these objects and caring for right. these objects in the public trust. And so if we're thinking about them as assets and when we fall on hard times, we're just unloading the assets to keep the doors open and salaries paid, you know, that that kind of undermines the whole principle of of caring for the artwork. So when we do deaccession things, we have to have a very good reason for it. You know, it doesn't fit. It's a duplicate. The condition is bad. You know, things of things of that nature. Same reason why mm-hmm. we would maybe not accept something in the first place. The reason why we would get it out of the collection. But you know, tastes change, priorities change. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to, you know, periodically, you know, refine refine the collection. But it's. Um, it's a lot of work, so it's not something that's entered into lightly. Do museums have, you mentioned maybe giving the work to another museum, and we, you you briefly sort of touched on shows going from one museum to another with the Paul Graham show. Do museums have particularly strong relationships with specific other museums? Like, so does the High have almost like best friend museums um, <laughs> or <laughs> um, that it wants to play with the most play dates sometimes yeah yeah I mean and is that just personal like because you have a strong relationship with someone at you know Art Institute Chicago or Museum of Contemporary Photography Chicago because that's where you came from or is it more sort of institutionalized relationships it's it's both you know sometimes you know, um you know, museums have shared interests and shared priorities. And so, you know, we'll organize shows together or one one museum will, will be organizing a show that seems appealing to another museum. And so then it'll travel there. But then there's also, like, there are a lot of, you know, re, you know professional relationships that curators and directors have um, with each other um, at museums. And there, you know, there are people who, you know, you know, you work well with, you know, you like the way that they, that they think, the way that they approach a particular project. They're just good people to work with, and you you know you yeah. enjoy you enjoy yeah. that professional process of collaboration. So yeah, I mean it's it's rarely all that formalized, though. You know we've I've had a few conversations with other curators about putting together some kind of consortium of these kind of you know smaller to mid-sized museums with photography collections, and because we all generate so many shows, and oftentimes they just go up in our museum and then they come down. Right? You know, why not? Share, why not yeah. circulate, why not circulate yeah, them around? Yeah, and we've never really gotten that off the ground in you know in a, it's a, great in a formal idea. way. But there are they, you know there are museums that you know that 
you know, in the high, that we tend to work with a lot. The high in particular, you know, we've we've collaborated with the Art Institute of Chicago and the MFA Houston on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just kind of they're not geographically all that close to us, so there's no overlap or very little overlap in terms of our audiences. But we're kind of we're interested in in similar things, and so there's yep. there's just you know there's you know mutual interest in in those kinds of projects. So before we wind down, tell me what you're working on right now, or I know you're working on more than one thing, but pick, pick one that you're really excited about and um, yeah, maybe describe where you are in the process. The, the big project that I'm working on right now is an exhibition that looks back at the last 25 years of commissions that the High has done, this project called Picturing the South. So in 1996, when Atlanta hosted the Olympics, there were, uh, the photography department at the High put on a big show called Picturing the South, which is a survey of photography in the region from the 1840s, you know, to to the present. And the curator at the time, Ellen Florov, wanted to make sure that that show was as up to date as possible. So she commissioned Dawood Bay, Sally Mann, and Alex Webb to make new work um, in the South, and it was really an, an open ended commission. They could photograph whatever they want, however they wanted. The only fantastic. Yeah. The only caveat was it had to be done in the South. I think I think at the time, she may have asked them to photograph in Georgia, but it's since expanded. And so over the last twenty five years, there have been thirteen commissions that have been completed, and we've just in the last year launched three new commissions. But it's been it's a really amazing project because it's because it's so open ended it's opened up a lot of new avenues for artists. So for example, Richard Mizrak created his project Cancer Alley or Petrochemical America. Um, and he, it was one of the, one of the first times that he photographed outside the American West and it turned mm-hmm. into this massive body of work. And he ended up revisiting the project 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex Soth started a project that at the time was called Black Line of Woods, but turned into Broken Manual, which was a yeah, major I body of work for him. At the high. I actually saw that show. I'm jealous. I wish I'd gotten to see that show. That was actually so coincidentally. That was how I first heard about the high, was when when it that was exhibition was announced. Um, and who else? Like Sally Mann. Sally Mann started. You know, she'd been kind of dabbling in landscape at the time, and working with experimental processes. But when she got this commission, it really solidified that direction for her work, which she, yeah, you know, a lot of ways is still is still working on. But yeah. Right now, Jim Goldberg, Anmi Lay, and Sheila Pre Bright are making new work for, wow. for the commissions. Yeah. So the idea is you know, to to celebrate this project and bring all of the work together because we have close to three hundred photographs that have been made through the Picture in the South commissions in our collection. Yep. So we'll show all of these bodies of work in as you know in as much depth as we can at the museum. So it's it'll essentially be sixteen of uh, concurrent small-scale solo exhibitions that are all connected by you know the fact that they were made in the South and they were commissioned by the High Museum, but they're all self-contained, you know, discrete bodies of work, and it's really it's some really amazing work has been done through this. So right and now, and when will that be? When will that exhibition happen? It opens November fifth of this okay, year, twenty twenty-one. Wow. I think people so, should plan a trip to Atlanta. To, yeah, come to Atlanta. Uh, to see that. <laughs> I love yeah. Atlanta, so I'll come down and see it because I love, love to see you. I love the museum, and as someone who loves to eat, 
Atlanta is a great eating city. Fantastic. You're welcome anytime. Thank you. I will definitely be there because that that sounds, you know, that show is going to be right in my happy zone as far as, you know, type of work. But that is super exciting. You, you must be having a blast doing it. It's been great. I mean, I've I've gotten to interview all of the artists who have Oh my god, how fun. I've done a commission. Uh, we were supposed to be traveling all over the country to to interview them in person, but because of the pandemic, we've been doing it online. But even so, you know, getting to sit down with, um, you know, with Alec or, you know, Richard Mizrak or you know, Dawood Bay for an hour and just talk photography <laughs> is, uh, oh my God. it's a dream come wow. true. <laughs> oh, my God. That is fantastic. I'm very jealous. Oh, my God. How fun. Wow. And what will you do with, so where will that text appear, those interviews? So we're How actually integrated. We're, we're going to be making a video, actually a series of videos that will be, um, will be included in the exhibition. So there'll be one, nice. one longer video kind of about the commission series in general, with all the artists talking about the commissions and kind of what it, how the commission influenced their work and how it kind of shaped oh, what wow. they did and also just like you know the work that they made and then we'll so we'll have that in the exhibition but we're also putting together we're calling it an online publication but it's essentially a kind of robust focused website and so we'll have individual videos about each of the artists um up on this website along with, and might there with be text a and archival materials um there there isn't going to be a book specifically about the picture in the south commissions but we do have a book in the works about the you know, the the broader sweep of photography in the South, so we're mm -hmm. we're revisiting that original picturing the South idea, and updating it, and so all of the commissions will be integrated into that that arc, mm -hmm. and I'll be writing something about the about the commission series for that book, but that won't come out until 2023. Well, this all sounds amazing. I mean, just super fun and exciting, and it's a lot um, of fun. Yeah. Well, one last question, just because I'm dying of curiosity to ask you this. How many, e do you just get constant emails from people like me? Do we just, do, do art dealers just drive you guys crazy trying to get you to buy work all the time? You Be honest. Be honest. Um, most of you guys are pretty courteous and thoughtful um, in the way when you, when you email us. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I get. Is it a barrage? I, I, I must get. Three to ten emails from from galleries every day. Oh my um, god! I mean, but a lot of them they're just like the, they're just like the regular routine mailings. And then you know, I get a handful yeah. of week that are specific to to me. Or I've got this new show. Thought you might be interested. Here's the right. checklist. Yeah. Um, things that are a little bit more a little bit more focused. But it's generally not annoying because it's sometimes helpful to be reminded. You know what's what's going on. It's very easy to get stuck in your own little bubble yeah working on your projects and you know plugging away at you know your research and writing your justifications and your exhibition texts and you know dealing with the other day-to-day -day museum tasks so sometimes it's nice to get a reminder to be you know get pulled out of that but you know i mean the same is artists you know email me all the time as well and it's it's usually it's usually you know very welcome to just you know hear what someone's someone's working on so you know i i i, nice <laughs> I enjoy that correspondence answer. usually <laughs> do you uh, is there pressure as a curator to i mean it's funny to ask this after what we just talked about about the picturing the south but do you feel pressure to sort of discover 
new, whether it's new form or new subject or, you know, where is that pressure? Where does it sit with a curator at a contemporary museum? I would say that more that I I kind of, I put that pressure on myself because I'm like, I'm interested in, you know, where, where is the field going? Where's, you know, what are, what are the new ways that people are working with photography? And I also, you know, want to be supportive of artists and give them a platform and help them find an audience. So I'm, you know, really interested in kind of what's new and what's, what's next, but it's not the only thing that I do. And it's not the only thing that I'm interested in. You know, the, the history of the medium is most of what I end up working with. So I don't know that I would say it's a pressure. I would say that it's like, you know, it's a draw. It's an, you know, there's, there's a lot of excitement around that, but it's also, it's, you know, it's balanced with, you know, what, what don't we know about these artists who we think we know so well, or what Mm -hmm. do we have in our collection that maybe has been shown before, but, you know, with, you know, 20 years hindsight on that work, maybe we have a different perspective on it and we want to, we want to present it in a, in a, in a different way, or maybe it's just like, this is just great work. You've seen it, you know it, but look at it again because it's just so incredible. You should spend some time with it again, even though you think you know it. Well, Greg, thank you so much for, you know, hanging out with me today and for, you were just, I mean, so game for, you know, sort of letting us peek behind the proverbial uh, curtain and get a sense of how things work. And I really, I'm quite sure that a lot of listeners just don't know these things. So I think it's super valuable and really, um, it's it's great to have these things sort of demystified. And there's no reason for a lot of these things to be secrets, whether it's what I do or what you do. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to share all of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really honored that you that you asked me on to talk about these things. Well, thank you. And maybe what we'll do is, you know, maybe we'll do another episode when the when the show opens. I really do want to see that show. And I'm always looking for an excuse to go to Atlanta, um, a city I really do love. So thank you so much. And I will talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks, Sasha. Okay. Bye, Greg. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.